0: hello everybody welcome back to human nutrition and lifestyle podcast today on the podcast we've got dr anthony chaffee is that how you say your second name chaffee uh
1: chaffee yeah chaffee
0: yeah chaffee so uh dr anthony chaffee is a carnivore full-on carnivore and he's going to speak to us today about his type of nutrition but firstly if you just want to introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and, and what you kind of do
1: yeah well th- oh thank you for that and thank you for having me on. Um, yeah so uh, as you said I'm a, an American medical doctor. I practice actually in in um in Europe as well as uh US and uh now Australia. Um I'm specializing in neurosurgery but uh, I have a special interest in diet nutrition how that affects health and chronic disease and so I've been you know looking into that especially in the last 5 years quite in depth. Um Starting 22 years ago, when I took cancer biology, my undergraduate degree, we learned that, that plants use chemicals to defend themselves. They use toxins. This you know, most people know this most, most plants are inedible. You know, if you get lost in the woods and you run out of food, you know, you can't just eat any random plant. You know, most of them will make you very sick or even kill you. So you have to know, you know, which plants to eat and, and which plants are, are less toxic. But this is, this is a theme, you know, plants, plants use toxins because they can't run away or fight back like an animal can and we were looking at that from a a cancer perspective and learning they were quite carcinogenic as well, had quite a number of carcinogens. They're actually more carcinogenic than the pesticides we sprayed on them, more toxic than than the pesticides we sprayed on them, which was quite shocking to us. And so I started dipping into this at that point and just stopped eating plants then because I'm like, well, you know, plants are are quite toxic. And even my, my cancer biology professor, when we were just thinking, like, well, but you know, but vegetables are still good for you, though. I mean, how you know, even even though you know you've painted this picture, um, they still must be good for you overall. And he just you know looked at us and he said, "I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you." And so it was like, right, you know, just. You know, stop eating plants and so and so I did, and just inadvertently went to a full carnivore diet simply because I was not going to eat plants and um did that for a number of years. I was playing professional rugby for 10 years before medical school, actually, uh, was in England for a while doing that as well and sort of slipped off of it in while in England, and then sort of five years ago came back to it and, and came across. Information, there's just like, you no know, humans actually are carnivores as biologically, this is what all the best evidence shows. And when I started looking at medicine through that lens that, that humans are animals, and the kind of animal we are, are carnivores, and we but we are carnivores that aren't eating as such. And if you give a lion grains, it's going to get very sick. If you give even a, if you give a cow grains, it's going to get sick, and it's not what it's supposed to eat. So, so diet is very species specific. So I've been digging into that since then, seeing exactly what we know exactly what we can prove. That's actually a lot more than than we think. And so uh, there's actually a a huge burden of evidence in this scientific literature in the medical literature, you know, going back, you know, 100 years, that actually paints a very, very different picture than what we've been told recently.
0: So if you've been on this trail for 20 odd years, then, is that what you're saying? You know, 20 odd years ago, you started thinking perhaps carnivore is the way to go. And you've been, have you been full carnivore then for 20 years or you've been in and out
1: potentially? Yeah. So, I mean, the the reason that I uh, initially did it was because I just, you know, was just like, right, you know, plants, plants are, uh, have toxins and, and I don't want those toxins in my body. And so I just, I just, as a process of elimination, I ended up just eating eggs and meat. And so it was sort of like the old, you know, uh, old golden era of bodybuilding sort of era guys like Aranda and, and Serge Nubre, they just ate steak and eggs and, you know, Nubre would eat six pounds of horse meat a day. And they got, the, the man was, ex, it was a, a, a specimen, physical specimen until his seventies when he was actually, uh, probably, probably murdered through, um, poisoning. Uh, but he was, he was in amazing shape and amazing uh, physical, um, uh, condition, even, even then. And, so I, I just sort of accidentally came across. I wasn't thinking like, I'm going to do carnivore. My ancestors were carnivore, you know, cavemen were carnivore. And so I'm going to do carnivore. Now I do that because that's what I, I think the evidence shows. But at the time I was just avoiding plants. And so because I didn't know exactly how significant it was, uh, you know, what I was doing was that, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit easier to, to slip off of it. I felt amazing. I felt absolutely incredible. I felt better than I ever felt in my life. And even when I was in England, and I just started eating just, I mean, how, how it sort of slipped off is I there was some crumbed chicken and I was just like, you know, is it, is it that big of a deal? You know, is it, you know, toxins are like, you know, dose dependent. And there's just a little bit, is it it's really going to make that much difference? You're, you're able to convince yourself of any stupid idea. And so I was able to do that and started eating things like that it was still just eating meat and eggs, but every now and then I'd have, you know, crumbed chicken and, because it was easy. It was convenient. I could I could just get a couple of big packs of that and just go and and train. And, and I remember a couple of months into it, just thinking to myself I was having aches and pains. I wasn't you know uh, I, I, did, I wasn't just you know, just because normally I would just be able to train, 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 uh, and I just couldn't get tired. I couldn't run out of energy. I could just push myself as as hard as I wanted to all the time and I literally couldn't get tired once I got up to a certain level of fitness. And I, I wasn't able to do that at this point and, and realistic. And, you know, the month before I got there, I mean, I was just, I just was killing it. You know, I felt amazing. And then, you know, and, and a couple of months into it, I'm like, well, why is it, why am I not feeling as just unbelievably amazing as I normally do? Am I just not pushing myself as hard? Am I not training as hard? Uh, am I, I'm 25 now. Am I just over the hill? I'm just, you know, I'm going to start dying and <laughs> it's just going to get worse. And I just, you know, I didn't really know what it was, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't how, how it used to be. And I I just didn't, I didn't really realize that that was, that was that difference. But I realized that, you know, five years ago where I looked at that and said, that was it. That's what I was doing. It was different. I was living as a carnivore. I was eating as a carnivore. I was strict as hell. And, and, and when I stopped doing that, that was when my, my health and fitness started changing. It's not like I was out of shape i still played high level rugby for another you know five years and kept playing in uh in medical school i played you know sort of semi-pro sort of things while in medical school I actually went to the royal college of surgeons in ireland i played with trinity and the you know the all ireland league um one a you know so it was one of the top leagues right before you know the premiership is sort of feeding into that and so high level rugby while doing 14 hours a day medical school you know not bad and um but I wasn't carnivore and I wasn't, you know, wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't the same as it was in my early 20s, which everyone will say, well, obviously, it's not the same as it was in your early 20s. But now, in my late 30s, I came back and went right, I knew it, I knew plants were trying to kill me, get rid of these things. And all of a sudden, bam, I'm able to train as hard and work as hard and, and, and harder. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm working out, you know, six hours a day. I'm in the gym three to four hours a day, actually. Like I could actually just lift weights ad nauseum and just, just keep going when I had time, I don't have time anymore, but when I did, I could do that. And then I was, I was, I was back playing rugby again in Seattle with my, my professional team there. It's now a professional in the major league rugby, uh, the Seattle Seawolves. And I was playing, you know, uh, I pl- grew up playing with the Saracen since I was a kid and know i was back doing that in my late 30s feeling amazing completely out of shape just you know overweight extra fat everything like that dead sprint the whole time you know and absolutely keeping up with you know all the all the other um you know guys on the team that had been training for months while i was doing humanitarian work in the in the refugee camps in uh in bangladesh and i come back and all of a sudden i'm two weeks carnivore and just boom out of the gate no problem And, and it was, it was just night and day. And now I'm actually, you know, long-term carnivore. And, and when I'm able to work out, I have the time to work out and and get in shape. I, I get in phenomenal shape. I mean, I feel better now than at 42 than I did at 27 as a, as a professional athlete working out for eight hours a day. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, great. I love the way you say it, because lots of people say, well, we don't really know how carnivore works because we haven't had those long term studies. We've not had anybody who has really done it for a long time. But in an essence, you've done it for 20 odd years, found a few pitfalls with it, experimented with a few different things and really worked it out, like you say, in the last five years to nail it down to say, no, look this is where you feel best. This is the optimal nutrition Mm. carnivore because everything else that you throw in and everything else that you try just doesn't cut it at the top level. And that's what you're saying. It's great. You mentioned that about our ancestors and and how we are carnivores and why we are carnivores and biologically and perhaps, perhaps evolutionary why we are carnivores. Maybe you can help our audience understand how we evolved to be carnivores and why we evolved to be carnivores.
1: Yeah. So about roughly six to 8 million years ago, we have a common ancestor with, you know, bonobos and chimpanzees and which were herbivores. Right. And that's fine. Uh, not all primates are herbivores, by the way, you know, like the tarsiers, is like the oldest primate that's this pure carnivore. So people say like, Oh, all primates are herbivores. Not the case. Um, we had a common ancestor that, that were herbivores. And then, you know, somebody, you know, some bright spot figured, hey, you know, I can, you know, uh, th- these dead animals that were finding, you know, left scavenging, like this actually tastes good. Maybe I grab this rat. Maybe that tastes good. And they started eating meat, whatever that, that source was. It was scavenging, certainly was was a large part of that. And they started eating meat started eating more and more meat, more and more meat. And they sort of sort of diverging evolutionarily. And because they, you know, weren't built like a lion or a wolf, they weren't able to you know, physically tear down a large game animal and, and rip them in pieces with their, their mouth and claws and, and just devour them whole, You know we had to do something else. So we started developing in, in different ways. We started figuring out uh, that you could take a rock and you could smash the, the skull of an animal that's already been killed by a lion or, or whatever. And you can break that open, you break that and get into the brain, which is very, very, very nutrient dense. And so that's, that's something that's being left by these other large predators that aren't able to sort of get into that skull, just big and hard. And so we, we have evidence of that going back millions and millions of years, the first workstone stone tool uh, where you sort of knock it, knock it in such a way that it breaks off and has this sharp edge was about 3.3 million years ago. That's the oldest one that we found with uh, probably Australopithecus. And before that there's, it goes back, going back millions of years before that there's evidence of, of, of uh, them using pound stones to crack open the head. So we were using tools because we didn't have claws. we didn't have teeth. So we had to figure something else out. We had to figure out tools, we had to figure out tactics. So our brains grew. instead of our claws growing and our teeth growing, our brains grew and we figured out how to get this nutrition as opposed to just being physically adapted to it because that's that's the trick, right? you know if, we, if you just have all the physical characteristics, to, you know take down, what you need or, or eat what you need you don't need to develop your brain you don't need to be intelligent and we did need to be intelligent so we had to figure out tools and we started develop, developing tools developing tactics develop fire develop all these other things and you look at our brain growth at the the um, you know, cranial capacity from that eight million years ago it starts going up starts going up you know, pretty steadily. And we're sort of you know better in nutrition, we're figuring things out, you know, the smart ones survive because you have to be clever uh to get nutrition in that game. And then all of a sudden, when the ice ages hit and our ancestors have better tools now, they're sort of like little stone sort of axes to you know hack into things. Um that's when our our brain size just really takes off, it has exponential growth. And that it coincides with where we think humans went full carnivore. We were already eating a lot of meat. And then our ancestors that, you know, were able to survive during the ice. I mean, you know, ice, ages, ice, ice, cold kills things, right? So cold comes down, kills all the plants, kills all the animals. And the only things that survive are these megafawnies big, you know, furry animals that can, you know, dig under the permafrost and get at the grasses and things like that. And then these big, you know, uh, predators that are eating them our ancestors were among them. And so you actually see there's like a large die off of, uh, of our, you know, proto-human ancestors that sort of didn't quite make it because they didn't go down that path of being able to survive as, as hunters and, you know, hunting big game. Once we were able to do that, once we were able to not just scavenge, but hunt and go for the most nutritious parts and be able to get the whole animal and have, have an abundance of resources at all times, that's when you see our height and our brain just like that. And it's a, it's a very, very, it's, it's the, the steepest rise in, in brain capacity and, and velocity that has ever been seen in the fossil record. And it's, it's quite significant and, and it coincides with us going pure carnivore and, and just having to be intelligent. And so we developed our brains, we, we and we have, uh, you know, people need to remember, you know, so oh, we don't have the teeth like a wolf or a lion or something like that. We don't have claws. That doesn't make sense. You know, carnivores have claws. Like, well, no, not necessarily. I mean, dolphins don't have claws. But you know, I mean, like, but the, um, you know, the whole point is that, that we are primates. And so we have physical sort of characteristics that are common to primates. But we have carnivorous adaptations. So our teeth got smaller, our jaws got smaller because we're eating softer and softer food. We're not chewing on sticks all day like a gorilla. And our brains got bigger. Here you know, our shoulders changed. And we had rotary force, so we can throw things, we can throw spears, we can throw rocks very hard. And we use this for hunting. A chimpanzee, which are way stronger than humans are, could throw a baseball probably around 20 miles an hour. The average adult male, can throw at 60 miles an hour. And obviously you, know, you train up, you can get that over hundred miles an hour for a certain, you know, certain people. And so obviously that's a very, very different thing that has to do with the, you know, the rotational shoulder that we have, you know? So there's a lot of other, other adaptations that sort of show that we are predators. Um, but, you know, very importantly, we grew our brains, you know, and we develop tools, we develop tactics and that's why we live in houses and lions don't, because we were able to. We had to use our brains. We had to figure out how to get a gazelle. When a lion just goes, "I'm gonna get that gazelle," yeah, that's fine. That's it's easy for them. It was hard for us. And we, you know, like like any any hard road, you know, you end up you know being better off at the end of it. We we had a very long hard road of millions and years, but we are we are definitely the benefactors of that hard road. Uh, yeah, no.
0: I, I like that because often you'll get pushback from people saying, well, our brains didn't develop because of me. If that was the case, then lions would be intelligent. But you see there, Yeah, but you can get that. People will say that. Yeah, and really? I, Well, the reason being there, what you've just nailed down because of the fact lions don't need to get intelligent because they yeah. just have to go out and get it. And that's it. They don't have to develop. They don't have to evolve anyway. They don't have to think of a different way to do it. Whereas potentially when we was evolving through Australopithecus and Homo habilis and all those different kind of ones to make it to, to, to be Homo sapiens sapiens, then we had to adapt each time, not only for climate, but for what was available and how best to get things, especially meat, hunting, like you say, throwing arms and that. So we had to develop and, and evolve and make ourselves intelligent so that we could feed ourselves so that we could evolve as a species. You know, like I say, lions don't have to do that. So you can strip it right down and strip it as far back as you can. So everything you look at in the human biology and the way we are made, the way we are designed with our teeth and our, our facial muscles and our arms and everything is points towards the fact that we were true carnivores. But mm-hmm. what about our digestive system? Then people say yeah. people, some people say, well, meat sits in your gut and rots. You know, we know that's not the case but mm-hmm. you know, there's all sorts of kind of things out there like that. So maybe you can dispel a few of those myths too.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, just first and foremost with that, you know, the meat rotting in the guy I actually made a post about this the other day and, you know, some um, person, you know, just got all shirty about it and things like that. And I was just like, and they're, they're trying to leave like, you know, red herrings from, me. I was just like, no, pay attention. And like, and I was, I was big, you know, quoting studies and showing links and things like that. She always tried to, was trying to divert around. I'm like, no, hold on. You know, stay on the topic. You're just, you're just, you know, you're, you're not, you're, you're trying to avoid the issue. And then you're not even addressing, you know, my, my original post It's just like, well, your original post was a straw man. Like no one has ever suggested that, you know, meat rots in your gut. I'm like, oh, contrary, like people do it all the time. And like, that's, that's, that's why, you know, this is out there, you know, because people say that they're like, oh, it's going to rot in your gut. It's going to cause cancer. It's going to cause these problems because this is just something that has been said without any evidence, either asked for or provided. And it's just been repeated and repeated and repeated. And so people, you know, you repeat something enough times uh, you know, people just take it as true. There's, I mean, that was, that was, the, uh, you know, the Nazis <laughs> tactic, you know, you just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And eventually people just believe it's true. And, uh, that's how propaganda works. Um, so no, of course that's not true. I mean, I mean, I've, I mean that any, any child can tell you that, you know, like, what do you think about this? Uh, they'll tell you, well, well, isn't it just a tube? There's just one way. I was like, are there out, I mean, I was thinking about it as a kid. I was like, are there just weird little out pouches that just like meat just goes and sticks in? Like, it wouldn't make sense otherwise, because your digestive tract is one way too. It just goes out. And just like, you know, fiber, like we, we actually physically cannot break down and absorb fiber at all, period. No, no vertebrate animal can break down fibers. Um, you know, the herbivores, they get nutrition from fiber. They cultivate special bacteria that eat the fiber and then they excrete short-chain fatty acids and the animal actually absorbs the short-chain fatty acids and then protein from the die off of the bacteria. They don't break down the, the fiber. So we cannot break down fiber. Everyone knows we can't break down fiber. So wouldn't that be the thing that's sitting there rotting in your gut? But even then, even then that goes out, right? Because it's a one-way two and can only go out. And people say, oh, no, no, that's a good thing. You don't you don't want to eat things that you can actually get nutrition from. Didn't you know you should be eating rocks and plastic, you know? And that's, you know, like, um, it's the same reason. I mean, I, I don't eat fiber for the same reason that I don't eat rot, rocks and plastic because you, you can't digest it. You can't break it down. You get no real nutrition from it and it causes harm. And, and of course, you know, meat is not in that category. And if it were, let's say you can't break down meat at all. Well, wouldn't that be good for you then just like fiber is because they say it gives you bulk to cause peristalsis to move this through your intestines. Well, wouldn't that be the same of meat if you can't break it down? Well, that would just, just help with peristalsis. Right. No, I mean, so, but they, so they, they say that one is bad for the same reason as the other is good. And so the, this is, this hasn't been thought through properly. So that's fiber. Um, as far as our, our digestion, um, you know, our, our stomach pH is, is very, very low. I mean, it's, it's lower than, you know, most like carnivores, like, you know, lions and things like that it's in the range of like scavengers. It's like, you know, it's like 1.2 to 1.5 pH, which is very, very, very acidic. And that is because we were eating a lot of rotten meat and carrion and, and had to, um, and had to be able to deal with that large bacterial bird. You know, that's, uh, that's how that works. You know, even when we switched to carnivore and being able to, you know, to, to, to hunt and, and eat meat, we didn't have refrigeration, you know. We weren't like a like a lion that just would gorge on you know a big quantity of meat and then go, you know, for a long time without potentially. I mean, some people did, you know, like the Mongols, like uh, Genghis Khan, the Mongol horde. They would go like five days without eating, and then they'd eat like you know uh, like ten pounds of horse meat, and then they'd go another five days and they just go and it was it was a s- serious advantage uh, in the in the battlefield because they weren't stopping to eat. You know, multiple times a day and they weren't getting cook fires out. It saved a lot of time. They could move a lot faster and at night, no cook fires, right? So you didn't know where they were and you didn't know when they were coming. So it was a lot of, a lot of surprise, uh, attack, uh, attacks and things like that. So very, very advantageous for a lot of reasons, but also because you don't need to eat every day, but you know, we would take down mammoths. I mean, our our ancestors were mammoth hunters and buffalo hunters. And like, you know, the Native Americans would do a buffalo drop where they would scare these buffalo off a herd. They would fall down to their death and we would preserve them and dry them and and eat them throughout the year, right? Um, and we did this with mammoths as well. There's, there's evidence of that uh, as well. And so, you know, there's going to be a burden of bacteria, so we have very low pH. You don't see that in herbivores. It's sort of like it's more, much more close, closer to neutral, sort of around like the six area uh, around there for cows, and so that that's very different. That is not something you see in herbivores or omnivores. That is something you see in carnivores or scavenger carnivores, like something that eats carrion. Okay, because you're dealing with a large burden of bacteria. Then you go into the fact that we cannot break down fiber, right? So all herbivores that eat fibrous plants, even fibrous fruits like frugivores and things like that, you know, they're not getting all their nutrition from sugar, really, you know, know, fruits in the wild aren't as sweet as the ones that we've cultivated and crossbred to be, you know, as sweet as possible. They're actually quite, you know, like you see like a mango, like a wild mango, big seed, not a lot of, not a lot of fruit and very tough, fibrous, very mildly sweet at best. You know, so what you're getting out of that mostly is, is the fiber. And so we cannot break that down. You know, all animals that can, they can break that, that eat fibers, plant, plants, break down the fiber and absorb the short chain fatty acids and protein that are derived from the bacteria that they're basically farming inside of their gut. We can't do that. We used to be able to do that. You know, primates are hindgut digesters, uh, when they're herbivores. So they have a shorter, small intestine, a longer colon and a very long cecum. Okay. We would call that an appendix. little thing the size of your finger uh, it's a vestigial organ, right? People know that. I remember learning that when I was a kid. The appendix is vestigial. It used to do something millions of years ago. Now it does nothing. Don't know what it did. Well, we do know what it did. Actually, it was, it was a very long elongated cecum. And that's where fiber would pack into and break down into short chain fatty acids and protein very simple. Now we don't have that ability. We don't even have that organ anymore because we haven't eaten fiber for millions and millions and millions of years, because instead of eating a bunch of of plants and fiber all the time, constantly to then cultivate this bacteria to break down and eventually absorb fat and protein, we just started eating fat and protein. So we're eating other animals that have done the work for us. Fat, Fat and protein make the animal kingdom go around. You know, there there are very few things that actually run on carbs, you know, even, you know, carnivores and herbivores, most all carnivores and most herbivores uh, still get like 70 to 80% of their calories from saturated fat carnivores because they eat animals with fat, and they go for the fat first. But herbivores, again, as well, because they, they break down that fiber into short chain fatty acids and protein. So even gorillas that just eat green leaves, they get around seventy percent of their calories from, from saturated fat. Cows get closer to eighty percent. They're more efficient at it. So this is, um, you know, this is this is something that you see uh, in other animals. You do not see in us. So why are we eating? We're really like basically. I, I don't. I can't think of a single example of animals that eat you know a bunch of fibrous plants and can't actually break down fiber. That's not really uh, very helpful because there's, there's pretty low nutrition density uh, in these things if you can't uh, get it out of the fiber. So we changed over to getting the fat and protein from the animals. And so our digestion is completely geared up for extracting nutrients out of just straight protein and and fat. So we have a longer small intestine, not, not a short one like herbivores. We have actually quite a long one that is typical for carnivores. And we actually have a, quite a small uh, colon and we have like n- and we have no cecum to speak of, right? which is again the opposite of what we would see in, in herbivores. Um, and I think quite tellingly, you know we have four organs working in concert just to break down and absorb fat. five if you want to include the stomach and the stomach acid. So if the stomach starts breaking down the acid, The liver makes bile, gallbladder stores bile, bile secreted into the, into the small intestine and it emulsifies and and is able to absorb it. Pancreas secretes, you know, um, uh, uh, know, enzymes to break down the fat into, you know, smaller components and then is emulsified by the bile and absorbed by the small intestine. So you have five organs all working together just to absorb fat. And tell me again, how fat is really bad for us. I don't, I don't see how that makes sense. You know, biologically, you know, we wouldn't have expended the energy evolutionarily to, to do that. Like we, we weren't expending the energy to, you know, we weren't using um, our cecum. We weren't using eating fiber and that just shriveled away and went away, you know? And so if we're not eating fat, if we're actually, just like low fat, you know, high carb creatures, we wouldn't have these organs working, the way they do. Also, you know, you can only absorb fat really with bile and our body makes a set amount of bile. Our body is very, very exacting in, in everything that it does. Why would it just make it just a random amount of bile to just be like, oh yeah, just whatever, you know, whatever you want to do. And, um, and then you know, be so strict with everything else. And then, you know, because there, there's actually a stop gap, right? You, you have a certain amount of bile, your body absorbs fat for the bile that you have available. And then it, it can't absorb fat. And so it goes out. So the idea of, oh, you eat too much fat, like there's no such thing. Like your body can't absorb after a certain point, it can, a bit, it can absorb a bit and some like medium chain fatty acids without bile. But um, if you look at like the percentage of fats that come out the other side, it's, it's the vast majority uh, come out if, if you don't have bile. So there you go. You know, like, like just evolution wouldn't have, wouldn't have wasted its time making all of these organs work in the way they do, expending all these it's high energy demand for all of these processes. And it, that doesn't make sense, that, you know, life and, and nature is, is it's, it's nothing if not efficient. And so if you're wasting energy on different biochemical and biological processes that you don't need to do, you'll waste energy and you'll hit a time when that's critical and you'll die and your species will die out, you know, and that this is actually where, where gallstones come from. Not everyone knows this, but this is something that I sort of figured out when I was started looking at medicine through this scope and like things just started spotting into place. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes diabetes. Okay. Yeah. That's just carb poisoning and your heart disease as well. And, um, and autoimmune issues. This is just from toxicities in plants. Your body's attacking those toxins and lectins that are getting in your body. And that there's spillover and cross-reaction with the, uh, with, uh, normal cells in your body to the, the genetically susceptible and, uh, gallstones are, are right there with you. We, we secrete bile at a constant rate from our liver. And that goes into our gall, gallbladder to store, just like the Mongolians, and just like the lions, they're like, Hey, I'm not eating five meals a day. And I'm not just constantly chewing on grass and cud like a cow or a gorilla. And so you're, you're, you're going to get your food in waves. And so you're making this bile, making this bile because that's how much fat your body wants. And it goes into your gallbladder to store it because you're, you might have to wait a while before you get it, but it doesn't just sit there and hang out. It actually concentrates because your gallbladder is not all that big. You, your liver makes about 800 milliliters to a liter of bile a day, right? Your, your gallbladder is not a liter. You know? It's much smaller than that. you know. So it actually concentrates. So it concentrates and concentrates. Some will spill into your gut and everything like that and be reabsorbed. But a lot of it will, will go in there and will concentrate, 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 concentrate. So that if you, it's been like a few days or a week or two weeks, you know, and you're like, okay, we're starving now. You need to replenish a lot of energy. You know, very quickly. And so you need to be able to take in and absorb a lot of fat. So you need the bile requisite to do that, because, or else you won't absorb it. And so you go in, you eat a whole bunch of fat, and you have this hyper concentrated bile, it squirts out, goes like fine. So physiologically, in the textbooks, it's normal to, to get up to 20 times more concentrated bile in your gallbladder, right? Maybe some people do more. Maybe there's the people that are susceptible to gallstones more than others would be. But think about it this way. What happens to any hyperconcentrated solution at rest? It's going to form precipitates. It's going to form crystals. That's what bile sludge is. That's what gallstones are. And that's the people getting gallstones. You talk to people who get gallstones. It's almost always people who were trying to lose weight. And what do you do when you try to lose weight? You stop eating fat because fat makes you fat. Right. so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm changing my diet. I'm going vegan and just going to eat salads and no more fat. And, and they do that for a while. Maybe they lose some weight because they're, they're, you're starving themselves. You know, people in Auschwitz lost weight too. That doesn't mean that it was healthy. Right. And then all of a sudden they, they're go like, well, this is miserable. This is no way to live. I hate this. And so they go back to eating something else and their body's screaming for actual nutrition, which is fat. Fat makes the animal kingdom go around and it's your body screaming for this. And you go back and you eat something that contains fat and you go, Oh, you know, oh, that hurts. You go to the doctor and, um, they said, Oh, well, you got gallstones because you eat too much fat, you know? I was like, well, no, actually it was because they didn't eat that. And there's a number of patients that I saw, uh, in the hospital who, um, you know, some of the general, general surgeons had been treating, uh, you know, I just overheard, hear these conversations and like, you know, the general surgeons talking to them and they just had, um, bariatric surgery. And like bypass surgery for, for weight loss. And, and then they come in all of a sudden they have gallstones and a lot of these patients get gallstones. A lot of patients uh, that get bariatric surgery, get gallstones and a lot of other problems It's actually very problematic. Surgery has a lot of down downstream consequences. Um, so that people should really think about before they, they do something like that. But this lady was was quite upset by this because, you know, she said, you know, I can't have gallstones. I can't have gallstones. Can't possibly be. And I said, well, well, you know, we have it on ultrasound. You definitely have gallstones. That's what's going on. You're going to need to get your, your gallbladder removed. And she said like, look, you know, I I just need some time to process this because I was convinced this could not be gallstones because I have not eaten any fat (laughs) in three months, you know, because you're told that, that, golf stones because there's a, there's a, uh, a cholesterol component in it. This is because you eat too much fat because you eat fat. You have too much cholesterol in your body. Just trying to dump this out and get rid of it. No, the, the chemical structure is made from cholesterol. So are, are over 27 of your hormones, by the way, testosterone, estrogens, progestogens, uh, uh mineralocorticoids, glucocorticoids, you all know, everything made in your, in your adrenals above your kidney, like cortisol, every single one of those is, is made out of, uh, cholesterol, vitamin D, you know, you have vitamin D, you have, you have, uh, cholesterol, and there's, there's 27 steps in between that and testosterone. Every single one of those are hormones. Every single one has a physiological biochemical process in your body. Every single one is derived from cholesterol. Every single cell in your body is made out of cholesterol. The cell lining in your body is, is cholesterol. Your brain is made out of cholesterol and saturated fat how is cholesterol bad for you i mean i i remember seeing that when i was in eighth grade we're looking at the structure of a cell i was like we are made out of cholesterol like how how can cholesterol be bad for you we are cholesterol i was like well maybe there's just some little idiosyncrasy that i'm not aware of because i'm 13 and you know i don't know everything yet and so i just sort of put a pin in that but now looking back i'm like this is crap and so you know it's um but that's the thing so we are taught we tell people we teach this in medical school that there are sort of four things, five, I guess, you know, the the four Fs or the five Fs for gallstones. Female, fertile, 40s, fat, and fair. Like, you know, uh, Caucasian women seem to get this more than others. So what is that, right? That is someone who is, you know, maybe had a couple kids, carrying a little bit of extra baby weight and wants to lose weight. And And if you want to lose weight, you wanna burn fat, you have to stop eating fat. And they stop eating fat. And that's exactly what gives them gallstones. I, I, no, that's not gonna to happen to everybody. I think there, is, there are probably people that are genetically susceptible to hyper-concentrating their bile more than others would. And they're the ones that are gonna sort of build up this sludge. But even if you are someone who would form gallstones, within 24 hours, which isn't really possible, or else you'd be dead in the womb, right? But let's say that you would make gallstones in a day, right? If you ate enough fat, meaning that you ate as much fat as you have bile made that day to absorb, it is physically impossible to ever form gallstones. Yeah. Now, maybe there are other physiological processes going on. You know, you talk, you know, the, the you know, general surgeons say, well, well, there's something else that changes metabolically that precipitates the formation of stones after you're, you're losing a lot of weight pretty quickly after bariatric surgery. Cause it's like, I don't know the exact figures, but it's, it's very high, uh, percentage of people past, you know, what you would see in, in, um, you know, in the wild and, uh, you know these bariatric cases and, but whether or not that's true, you still cannot get gallstones if you eat enough fat. It's not possible because you will expel all the bile in your gall gallbladder every single day. There won't be any left in your gallbladder to make stones. Full stop. Like it's not possible. And you know, I, I, I would love to hear someone's rationalization for how that is possible to form, you know, bile stones when there is no bile there
0: wow absolutely brilliant i love listening to that because it's an absolute comprehensive (laughs) way to talk about how the digestive system works and hopefully by now everybody who's listening to this podcast if there's some new listeners i always say about how important fat is and the right fat as well it's not just fat across the board obviously anthony's talking about uh, carnivore nutrition so it's animal fats you know saturate good saturated fats um, and it's so important across, uh, across all biology to get fat in your nutrition. All animals have fat, even herbivores, like you say, say yourself. It is what mm-hmm. makes the body work. It is what makes the body tick around. But there's, there's also glucose as well, which we do mm-hmm. actually need. So people mm-hmm. could say, all right, you're on account of our nutrition. How do you get glucose? And, and where is the glucose in your body coming from?
1: Yeah. So you, you make glucose, you know, you, you make through a process called gluconeogenesis and, uh, you know, something that, that, that people know about. And uh, i learned about in biochemistry and, you know, when you go in a fasting state, right. You don't eat, we you know, we don't eat for a while. And then you, you run on your fat stores this is why a lot of people fast, you know, to try to lose weight because they're just, they're forced to go into their, their body's fat stores. Well, what is that doing? You know, you're, you're, you're mobilizing your fat and you're turning it into the nutrients that you need. You're making blood, blood sugar, you're making liver glycogen, you're making muscle glycogen, and you're actually replenishing it continually, right? And that actually is a benefit athletically and just in the rest of life, because you are constantly able to access your fat stores. This is where intermittent fasting comes in. People that even eat carbs and other sorts of things, they wait out the clock on the insulin. And so they, they basically are in a fasting state every single day. And then once a week, they don't eat it at all. And so this is just increasing your time in what I think is our primary metabolic state, but the so-called fasting state. Uh, I think the only reason we call it a fasting state instead of our primary state is by the, by the time we were able to look at biochemistry at a molecular level, everyone was eating carbohydrates. And I said, Oh, when you eat it, eat, eat it looks like this. And then when you don't eat, it looks like this. It's like, yeah. Okay. When you eat anything except carbs, it also looks like this and you're clearly not fasting. I mean, I I eat, you know two or three or sorry one or two kilos of uh ribeye a day like i'm not fasting <laughs> i'm not going hungry you know and so that's not a fasting metabolism that is our primary metabolic state that is a primary metabolic state of, of nearly all animals in the wild because cows and and herbivores and carnivores they're all running on fat and protein so they're all in a ketogenic starvation state so it's, it's not a starvation state you know that's that's incorrect um so you know we know this that that when you aren't eating carbohydrates you make all the carbohydrates you need there were studies with wolves back in 1981 they said like well well you know don't you have to eat carbs in order to burn carbs and you know wolves don't carbo low before they chase caribou for 10 hours so you know what are they doing do they have blood sugar do they have liver glycogen they found out yes they do and it's rock solid it does not change. It doesn't go up. It's a very small variation. It doesn't matter what they're doing, when they're at rest, when they're, you know, going chasing down caribou, when they're after the chase, when they're eating, after they're eating, it's here, you know, because it's demand driven. And so instead of just eating a whole bunch of stuff, and then all of a sudden you just slam up your blood sugar, slam up your, your glycogen, because your body's trying to get rid of this blood sugar, high, high blood sugar is harmful. You know, I mean, think about think about diabetics. Just having chronically high blood sugar damages your body. You know, and, and these glucose molecules physically fuse to other molecules, and they damage them and cause them to act faulty. This is this is a, a precipitator of uh, the damage you see in atherosclerosis and heart disease, and many other things. And then having chronically high Insulin as a result, because your your body looks at this and goes, sweet Jesus, what has this idiot done? He's trying to kill us. And it slams up your insulin in order to to drive this blood sugar out as quickly as possible. But this isn't a controlled process. You are trying to get your your, your insulin goes way up so that you can just get this stuff down. This is hazmat. This is damage control. You just get it out of here. So your insulin is way too high and it stays high because it has a longer half-life. And so now it's up and now your blood sugar just keeps going down. Now you get low blood sugar. Now it's too low. And you know, oh, you feel tired. You don't really feel good. And you have to eat more carbs in order to jack that up. And so, you know, we're just playing this game where we're having these, these, these swings of blood sugar and, and uh, insulin. Um, and that's because insulin forces energy into cells. It doesn't allow it to come out of cells. So, you know, and it's very simply put, even more simply than that. It changes you from a fat burning metabolism into a fat storage metabolism, right? And so you can't use your fat stores. You eat the sandwich with bread. Well, you know, good luck because, you know, you've now locked down all the fat stores in your body. And so even though you've eaten the, the, the energy that you've now deposited in fat is now inaccessible. This is why a lot of people train fasted they feel better doing that. Or maybe that, you know, I've I always tra- play, trained and played fasted throughout my entire career, I always just felt better. I never ate the day of a game, and in fact, I felt a lot better if I didn't eat dinner. You know, so it would be like a like twenty four hours plus that I would feel the best when I played when I played a game. I always played hungry. That's what I always told people: is I like, always play hungry, always play hungry. You know, it just gives you that edge. You know, you're just like, I've got to go kill a gazelle and eat it, you know, or else, you know, I'm I'm gonna die. And you have that sort of that killer instinct, and it just it, you have more energy. I thought about in th- those terms, but by bio- biochemically, it makes perfect sense because I was able to mobilize my fat stores. I was able to just go and go and go. Think about it this way. You know, everyone everyone knows about hitting the wall. You know, if you train really hard, you play any sort of athletics. You know, you you go and you train as hard as you can, and then eventually you just hit the wall. And you're, oh, that's it. You're done. And maybe you drink a bunch of, you know, and you know, you know sugary drinks or something like that to perk you up. Um, you know, but but in in real life, you know, you generally stop right then and just be like, okay, uh, that's it for my workout. But you know, some people that are you know, uh, you know, training at a higher level or doing like large endurance, uh, you know, uh, uh, events or marathons or whatever. You know, they talk about how if you push yourself and you push yourself and you push yourself, you can actually break through the wall and you can actually get to your second wind and your runner's high and then you just go forever and just run forever and you just feel amazing and you just keep going and going and going and going. Um, what that is by biochemically is that you have loaded up all this glycogen, but you've locked down your fat stores. You have weeks of energy in your fat stores. You have hours of energy in your glycogen. Okay. Just remember that. So now you run out of, you you push yourself and push yourself, you run out of glycogen, but you cannot access your fat stores. So you hit the wall. You don't have energy. You feel like crap. And so most people stop. But if you push and push and push and push and push, instead of taking 24 hours to bring your metabolism back around, you can actually force your system to start mobilizing fat and ketones again. And then you start through gluconeogenesis, you start making blood sugar, you start making liver and muscle glycogen. And you also get the benefit of ketones, which is actually your heart's primary energy source and your brain's primary energy source. Okay. So this, this works out, you know, for, for some of our major organs and, and then you, you feel like you have, you know, unlimited energy because you basically do, it's going to be very, very hard to run out of your fat store. They literally take weeks for most people. And so you can just keep going. So I can, can I just stop,
0: stop you there because I really want to yeah. just focus on that bit because yeah. I know I've got a lot of athletes listening. I've worked with some athletes as well, and and obviously carbs feature quite highly it, generally mm-hmm. in the nutrition of an athlete because you know society says you've got to carb load, you've got to have carbs in your nutrition to get the best out of yourself. And but what you're actually saying there is uh, you can make your own glucose. So why then top it up? Why then add extra extra in? for your body to cope mm-hmm. with, to give it a problem to start with. So you're potentially starting your race or your endurance activity with a high, high level of glucose in, in your system, which your body is trying its hardest to reduce, to bring down. So then mm-hmm. you're starting off with a problem. So you're yeah. not actually starting off where you need to be. You're starting off with a problem. Eventually you get to that wall, you, you bonk, you run out of glycogen, you run out of glucose, even if you're topping it up. Let's get this right. If you, Even if you're topping up all your glucose and all your carbohydrates as much as you can you can never get on top of it people don't mm-hmm. realize that you can take as much as you want you'll never replenish your stores whilst you're training whilst you're doing your your activity so you, you're on a downward spiral you're always going and you will bonk you'll hit that like 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 you say and then you have to switch to fat so why not do that at the start why yeah. wait till you get to the bonk uh, you know and then actually start off but let's touch a little bit on gluconeogenesis as well, because it's important, especially for, for athletes and everybody to understand that it's not breaking down all of your muscles. You know, people think, no. oh, well, if, I, if I'm mm-hmm. in gluconeogenesis, what I'm doing is I'm breaking down my protein. So that's breaking down my muscles. It's not.
1: Mm-mm. No, no, you don't. No, no, you, you don't even you don't even touch your muscles for energy. As long as you have ketones, as long as you're producing ketones, that means you have fat in your stores. Your body does not touch your, your muscles for energy. Now, if you're not stimulating your muscles, your body's not going to be, you know, putting in the requisite energy to, to, to maintain and build them to the size of, so if, if I'm not eating as much as I normally do, like I can't maintain, you know, my body mass, if I'm not working out and I'm not eating enough, like it's just, my body's just going to be like, well, right. Well, you're not putting the energy into it. We're not going to put the energy into it. Right. You know, so it's, it's, it's very efficient. Like I said, uh, no gluconeogenesis is, is, is again, demand driven. It comes from your fat. It can come from proteins, but it comes from fat. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, the prominence. So like, um, you know, this is, this is, uh, uh, not due to muscle breakdown. This what, is What this I
0: want to what I say to, to get people to understand is that if your nutrition's right, all right, gluconeogenesis yeah. <laughs> is going to break down your muscles if your nutrition is not right. So get your hmm. nutrition, right. I have plenty of protein, I have plenty of fats. And then gluconeogenesis is not a problem. You, that's what your body's meant mm. to do.
1: Yeah, well, I, absolutely. I mean, this this is this is our body's primary metabolic state. Like I'm just, you know, I, I explain this exact thing. That exact thing, I explained to my mother's uh, GP, who is an MD PhD from Harvard with a PhD in biochemistry from Harvard. And then she went to medical school, and I was explaining that I was like, "Look, I think we've got we've got biochemistry all wrong. I think this is our, you know, fat, you know, fat-driven state. That's our primary metabolic state. I don't think it's a fasting state. That's where all of our heavy machinery comes to bear." And we, you know, we went into it, and she was just like, "Yeah, you're right. You know that that's what that that's what that is. You know, and so you know this is, this isn't just me saying this. You know, when I explain, you know, I have a degree in molecular and cellular biology and in, in chemistry. I took biochemistry, um, you know, at at a, at a you know, college level, not just like, you know, just a a module in medical school or something like that. Like I had a real degree before I went to graduate, you know, uh, medical school, I have an, you know, MD medical doctorate, like, you know, like I actually took actual biochemistry. And when I explain this to actual biochemists, they're like, damn it, that's right. You know? And so, um, you know, your body's very efficient at this. Your body's very, very efficient. And we, we know in biochemistry, um, this is a textbook, please go find a, a college textbook on biochemistry and look this up yourself. When you go into a fasting state, fasting state, your actual state of uh, metabolic happiness, you know, you, you look at these processes, your body just, just mobilizes energy and ketones and blood sugar and, uh, and in glucose and glycogen in, 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 exacting degrees. And it is, it is demand driven. It's not, it's not just like, oh, you have fat. Here's a whole bunch of glucose. Oh, you ate so much protein, ah, glucose. So you're not going to, you're not going to get a big spikes in, in blood sugar or anything like that. Um, you know, it, it's your, your blood sugar is going to be rock solid. So this is really, really important for like, say diabetics type one and type two type one, because they really, that's, that's the, thing, the crazy thing for me is just like type one diabetics can't make insulin anymore. Right. So their, their blood sugars go crazy. They can't, they can't control it. They start losing a lot of weight. They start losing a lot of muscle mass because, you know, there's no, there's no blood sugar getting to their muscles and their bodies are just breaking down. There's tons of weight They get unhealthy. They can, they die. When eating carbohydrates, when you don't eat carbohydrates, your blood sugar is actually very well maintained, and you actually need a little bit of blood sugar or of insulin, I should say. You know, if you if you just went all of a sudden, bang, you just lost your pancreas that day, you weren't making any insulin, right? You 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 die pretty quick, you know. Even even type one diabetes, it's just it's a it's a progression into you know non functionality, and so you know if you're if you're eating a bunch of carbohydrates, then obviously there's, there's, you know, there's a problem there and you're not, not able to mobilize your ketones or anything like that. If you're not doing that, there's, a, it's a much slower progression. You can actually get on top of it much, much easier. And then they say, okay, here's insulin so that you can control your blood sugars. Ooh, And you need to eat, you know, sugar so that you can offset the insulin. I'm like, well, which one is it? You know? Um, I thought you were supposed to be taking insulin to exacting degrees to control your blood sugar. And now you're like, Oh, well, if you, if you don't eat carbohydrates then you're, you're not going to have any, you know, uh, carbohydrates for your, your insulin to work on. And then you're going to be taking this insulin. And you're just going to kill yourself. It's like, well, wouldn't you just stop taking the insulin then? I mean, that's stupid. You know, so no, you don't have to eat sugar and carbohydrates to offset the insulin or else you wouldn't need to take the insulin. You wouldn't have to, you know, you would just not eat the carbohydrates. So you get very good control. And so type one diabetics, instead of, instead of taking, you know, insulin shots multiple times a day, um, you just take basically one background dose, like basal dose, uh, of, of like Lantus or one of the other long acting ones, very low dose. And it just sits there and that just maintains it because your blood sugar is a constant. Right. And so you're not going to have these swings. You're not going to go up and down. Well, fine. You, you take too much and you have a, and you have a dip, you know, drink some milk, you know, get some carbs and you fine, you know, but, or, you know, eat meat. Your body will make this stuff. You know, if you take too much, then yeah, look, you have to, you have to just deal with it. Um, You know, any port in a storm, but day to day, you know, you just take a background dose of Lantus, your blood sugar will be here. Um, Type two diabetics. Again, very good blood sugar control. Uh, you know, you're, you're not in this hyper-insulinemic state. you are just pumping this stuff out. You're not burning out your beta islet cells. Your body starts, you know, calming down healing you know, a lot of people that know, type two diabetics, a lot of them can actually go off insulin, not all of them, but, but a lot of them will come off insulin and start making insulin again, or, or at least making enough that they can deal with the low demand that they have. So this is, this is very, very good control. And, and we have literature, this was, this was a normal treatment for diabetics, type one and type two, at, at least in the early 1900s, if not into the 1800s, you know, so this is something that we we knew, we know a lot about. I mean, it's it, at least a hundred years that we've been doing this for, uh, for diabetics. And then all of a sudden we just, we just thrown all of this out because we're in the pharmaceutical age and, you know, and so now we just like, oh no, no, look, we have pharmaceuticals. Don't worry about that diet stuff. We don't need to worry about that anymore. And, and they just throw it out. He's like, here's a problem. Here's a pill. And that's it. And that's, and that's how we're trained in medical school. And that's how we think is, that's how we're trained to think as doctors. Oh no, no. here's the problem. Here's the solution because someone's already done this. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, like, you know, if someone has this, give them this pill that doesn't work. Give them this other pill that doesn't work Give them this other pill. You have second line, third line, fourth line treatments, but no one is actually in that entire experience. Using their actual brain, I was talking to a professor of biology, uh, Thomas Seafried from Boston College, and he was at Yale doing a postdoc, and then he was an associate professor there, and he did a lot of research into uh, neurology, and um, and biochemistry, and uh, and he's a, he's a he's a you know top top expert in, in cancer biology as well, and he was he said that he was doing um, you know because we using we've been using a ketogenic diet to to stop epilepsy. For 90 years now, it's all in the literature. Johns Hopkins still does this, and yet you talk to people now, and they're like, "Oh no, no, just don't do that. Just you know, give them a pill." And and, and said that he said he was doing research into that, into um, uh, epilepsy and the keto diet, and and, and you know the, the different people, faculty in his department was like, "Oh no, 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 no. don't 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 waste your time on that. You know, it, it's all about the pills now. It's just the pharma, pharmaceuticals. We have good pharmaceuticals now. We don't need to worry about that." and so you know i think that's the problem i think that
0: anymore. i think that we don't give our body chance anymore i think yeah. that if you just took a back step and let your body deal with whatever it is dealing with then it, it gives it a chance you know you go back to our mm-hmm. ancestral diet which is carnivores you know we've said at the start of this podcast that everything Points towards humans being carnivores. I mean, at the end of the day, we was apex predators. You cannot mm. be apex predators without eating meat. You just no plant eater is ever going to be the top of the food chain, are they? So everything mm. points towards being carnivores So give your body that a chance. If you're dealing with anything now, anybody out there, whether it's diabetes, chronic disease, illness, even injury, you know, go back to the baseline and, and see what carnivore can do for you because that's where we come from. That's our that yeah. is our natural. Uh, Nutrition. But even now, even still, and and I I am one of these people, I still need convincing that a full on carnivore nutrition is at the top, is the optimal nutrition because my daily habits are perhaps 95 percent animal based. But then I do have the fruits. I do have some vegetables because it fits in well with my lifestyle, fits in well with when you potentially go out to eat, when you have social events, things like that. So, should everybody be carnivore, or should everybody aim to just get as many animal produce in their nutrition as they can?
1: Yeah, well, i think I think eating more meat is is certainly a good first step. but the 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 problem comes, and the reason I you know advocate for a full carnivore diet is because, Plants themselves are, are actually just biologically, botanically uh, poisonous. They all, all use poisons to defend themselves. They're stationary obje- they're stationary organisms. They can't run away or fight back like, like an animal can, and so they need other defenses. All living things have defenses, and so they have you know, different sorts of things that are very interesting. If people ever sort of uh, you know, watch you know, nature shows, all the different sort of defenses and the ways that they use to you know, like mimic growing, like caterpillar. Uh, or, or, or yeah, um, like butterfly eggs on their leaves. So the butterfly goes like, oh, well, I don't want to lay my things there because it's going to be competing with resources or the other things I'll go somewhere else. Very clever little things like that. Uh, but they all use poison. And so, you know, we think about this, right? You know, you get lost in the woods, you run out of food, you can't eat any random plant. Most of them will kill you, right? So this, this goes, this is as true for spinach as it is for hemlock right? It's just that we have more defenses against the poisons that are in spinach than we do the hemlock, which would just kill you dead. It blocks the GABA receptors in your brain. You will die of seizures within two minutes and no medication will stop it. You know, like you're, you're done. And so it's uh, very, very toxic. And that's very, very normal in the, in the plant world. They don't want to be eaten. You know, when you eat them, they die. So I, I mean, I've learned this in, seventh grade i mean we teach this to children and then we smack it out of them you know, we teach them they're apex predators top of the food chain and that's what you know the stable isotope study shows we we can actually look at stable nitrogen 15 and actually see you know what animals were eating plants because you have a certain number of uh n15 and then the animals that were eating those animals they have a, a you know higher concentration of the n15 and then the animals that were eating those animals that ate the animals that ate the plants have again a higher concentration so you can actually measure up the food chain, right? Our ancestors had a higher carnivore rating than lions, hyenas, foxes, and wolves alive at the same time in the same area, okay? Because we were eating the lions, the hyenas, and foxes, and wolves as well. You know, we are apex predators, okay? Apex predators don't graze, and we know they don't graze because the Stabilized slope study would have shown if we grazed, we would have had a lower uh, you know, N- N15 score. Um, what about so- fruit,
0: things like fruits? Because we know our ancestors uh, went through periods of, of potentially barren, not being able to find animals and things like that. So they grazed on, on fruits or you know, made tubers part, part of their nutrition. So mm-hmm. things like that, can we add them into our nutrition today?
1: you know i mean i mean things are better some things are better than others some things are better and worse you know so so we have we have some sort of defenses we come from an herbivorous background we have we have some defenses but you know what i learned in seventh grade was that you know plants and animals are in an evolutionary arms race Plants becoming more and more poisonous so less and less animals can eat them so they can survive and thrive. And then animals becoming more and more adapted to specific poisons and specific plants so they can eat that plant and survive and thrive. And that's their dedicated food source and resource. That's why, you know, koalas eat eucalyptus like nothing else eats eucalyptus, but koalas don't eat anything else either. Right. And so that's, that's true of all herbivores. They eat very, very specific plants and even cows that eat grass, they eat specific grasses. Other grasses can harm them or even kill them. So they eat the grasses that they eat. Okay. So based on that, you can have some more defenses. So, so it's not that hemlock is more poisonous than spinach. It's that we have the defenses against spinach. We have more defenses against spinach than we do hemlock. Okay. So yes, there are some things uh, that we can eat. Um, we didn't really eat all that many plants. I mean, think about like the ice ages, there weren't really any plants available. Uh, and we were hunting mammoths. There was actually, there was actually an abundance of energy uh, available uh, to us. So and we have quite a lot of, of, of you know, fossil records showing this you know, the, just the people back then were on average, like six, two or taller for an adult man, you know, the, an adult man in like, uh, in the U S on average is five foot eight, you know, and we would, we would be on the taller side, you know, around the world, like, you know, around Asia, it's like, it's like five, four, five, six in, in China. I think, um, that's, pretty short, you know, the average height of a population, you know, shows the average of the relative health of that population. Obviously there's differences in in genetics and family and things like that, but you know, you, you are maximizing out your, um, your, your genetic potential for growth. And, you know, we we know that, you know, vegans and vegetarians, this stunts the growth of their kids. They have lower bone density. They have shorter stature. They have uh, lower intelligence as well. They have higher rates of autism, higher rates of miscarriage, higher rates of birth defects. This is, this is not good. So we're not getting the requisite nutrition. You know, know, don't believe it when someone says, oh, you can get just as good uh, of nutrition. Uh, by eating a plant-based diet as you can an animal-based diet. That's not true. You can't get basic nutrition from eating plants. You can't get B12, D3, K2. You never get enough vitamin A because you have to eat six pounds of of carrots a day to get enough vitamin A. You won't get enough uh, of the essential fatty acids, the very long chain fatty acids, which our brain is made of, which we don't make and don't exist in plants. You have to get them from meat. Things like DHA, EPA, all these things do not exist in plants. We have to get them from our diet. You have to get them from meat. So not true. And also the, uh, the available uh, nutrients that they do have are not bioavailable. They, they do not, uh, we do not digest and, and ex- extract these nutrients very well. Some of them we don't extract at all. You know, we say that, oh, here's, here's some protein in uh, wheat, right? Wheat has this amount of protein. Well, 80% of that wheat is gluten. And gluten is not usable as protein by humans at all. Not even, not even 1% just is not able to be used. So that's bang, 80% off the board, off the top. And then, you know, the rest of the protein isn't actually very accessible either. And they also make protease inhibitors because again, they don't want you to eat them. So they're going to mess with your body. They're going to mess with, with you. They're going to mess with your hormones. They're going to mess with, you're going to put put cyanide in there's 3,500 plants use cyanide to just kill you. You know, like some tubers like cassava, cassava roots. These are one of the, the, this is the third most important calorie source in the third world. If you don't prepare it right, it will kill you from cyanide poisoning. There's a lot of cyanide in it. And, and there's a lot of other plants that meet this description as well that are very toxic. But we, we, we figured out ways of processing them because, you know, we have brains and that's great uh, and to make them less toxic and to make the nutrients more bioavailable. But meat just has it there you know and so it's it's a it's a very 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 different thing i mean th- think about so when, it this when, way. We're, when we're talking about yeah.
0: vitamins and minerals then immediately pops up in your head somebody will say what about vitamin c potentially yeah. vitamins we need vitamin c as humans to survive so where are we getting the vitamin c from in an animal-based nutrition
1: yeah yeah so where are the inuit's getting it True. Right? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> so, yeah, so so I mean that's the thing. You know, in the North Pole, I mean, there, there there are no fruits and vegetables available. There just aren't. You know, they say, well, in the summer months, they they might you know pick berries and things like that. Like, yeah, maybe, not many. They're generally sour, like lingonberries, and uh, and no, not not all of them do because not all of them live in an area that he, that ever thaws. You know, some of them are in the permafrost. You know, they're going going around on the, on the ice sheets and things like that. And so, yeah, and you know, down south, more south, anyway. They, they could do that. But, you know, we, we, we actually, you know, have been warming up. There was this mini ice age that came around for a few hundred years. And when the early European explorers came to North America, uh, things were much colder. And, and the, you know, the habitable part of North America was much further south. The only people that were going up into what is now Canada uh, were like fur trappers and things like that. And it was very, very harsh conditions. And, and people sort of exploring up there as well. And then things started heating up a bit, and sort of you, you were able to sort of, you know, uh, sort of the first hundred miles of, uh, of Canada sort of became uh, habitable, you know. But like the vast majority of the population of Canada lives within a hundred miles of that border, and the ones in, in you know a hundred miles out like aren't happy about it. Like, it's very cold, <laughs> and so you know you go further than that, it's it's, it's worse. Um, there are documentations and ledgers and things like that of people talking, uh, early explorers and, and settlers talking about you know meeting the 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 natives that were up there and they were like you know and they were just marveling how they only ate meat and they were like well this this is crazy you know they they only eat meat like all the time and like you know it's like i understand you know most of the year when it's just like you know covered in snow and they, they they can't grow crops you know they have to hunt you know like yeah i get it you have to do that but You know, in the summer months, when things thaw out, you know, surely they could live off the bounty of the land. And that's how they, I always liked how they worded that. And, um, and they said, but no, they don't. They don't forage. They don't, you know, uh, uh, eat plants and grow crops and things like that. They just eat meat, even in the summer months, even when there's no snow on the ground. And that, and those are only the ones in the South. You know, the ones further up north never had that chance in the first place. So maybe some of them meat berries, maybe, maybe, but generally it's when they were starving and they couldn't get meat. And you see that in, um, in, uh, Australia. So a lot of the, uh, missionaries and explorers, uh, would, you know, who've written books and, and diagram and, and, and chronically chronicled all this. They're talking about how they, they just ate meat. And they were like, like, wow, these guys, like, they only eat meat. Like, that's crazy. And then someone who eat, like, very specific meat. Like, in Tasmania, they were only eating mollusks. They were just, like, diving for abalone and things like that. And that's just all they ate. And they even tried to, like, give them, like, offer them fish. I'm like, oh, no, we don't want it. Thanks. You know? And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll stick to abalone. Thanks. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, and some of the missionaries said that, you know, if they ran out of food, and they ran out of meat, they knew which which plants and tubers and things like that, that they could subsist on and survive. Because again, that gives that survival advantage, having that herbivorous past, being able to eat some plants and not die. Like, you know, like felines will just die basically with like any plant. They, they are very toxic because they've been carnivores for way longer. So they've been out of that arms race much longer than us. And so they can't do that, but we can, you know, so that, that gives us a survival advantage in those situations. And yeah, sure. We can survive, but that's survival. That's not optimization. That's not living optimally. And, and that's, and that's what, you know, all these sort of records show. And so, yeah, maybe you can eat those things and survive, but it's not, it's not optimal.
0: I think that's today where people, some people say they thrive on a vegetarian, vegan diet. What they're actually doing is surviving. They're in their survival mode because we know looking back at historical records and ancestral records that there were periods of time that human ancestors had to go without meat. You know, in some Mm. continents, in some parts of the world, they just, it was barren. So they had to survive on, that's how we became the number one homo sapiens in the world. We globalized the planet. That's how, because we was able to survive these barren periods. Like you said, it's survival though. You've got to really believe that it's a survival mode to thrive to really thrive you need the meat you need to be Mm. over more on the carnivore side and like you say yes our bodies can cope with some plants and and, and some fruit and that but it's only because we've got the defenses for them so really what you're doing by introducing plants and, and things into your nutrition is you're giving the your body chance to fight it off so do you want that? You know, you've got to ask yourself, do you want that in your nutrition? Are you going to eat the plants and the fruit to cause yourself maybe a little bit of a problem, to cause yourself a little bit of a digestive issue? You may not even realize it, but your body's working hard on the inside to try and negate the chemicals and things like going in there. So do you then opt for the full carnivore diet where, you know, you can thrive on? And I just want to answer your question. Yeah. Uh, statement as well about saying where the inuits get their vitamin c from i believe whether you believe this or not is i believe they do get vitamin c because they eat the bones they the they eat their organs they eat every part of the animal nose to tail skin everything and animals have vitamin c in them they have vitamin c in their bones they have vitamin c in their organs they have vitamin c and they do have vitamin c in their muscles just not very much but I think the amount of vitamin C that human that we've been told that humans need is blown way out of proportion. I think yes, we do need vitamin C, but we only need very little to be able mm-hmm. to to survive. So I believe that's true. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you believe the
1: same. No, no, well, it's not about belief; it's a fact. It's a fact. I mean, <laughs> that's just this is what it is. You know, it's um, you know, we. We, we need, depending on what you eat, you need a different constellation of nutrients because you need different nutrients to help you process the different things that you eat, like manganese, you know, say, oh, you need a certain amount of manganese. It's not enough in meat. Well, what does manganese do? It helps you, you know, digest and process, you know, plants, basically, you know, all these micronutrients that exist in fiber, you have to get the fiber. It's really important or else it's not going to, you're not going to have these nutrients that help you break down and, and process and absorb plants. Okay. If you don't eat the plants, you don't need those nutrients, right? If you don't take the poison, you don't need the the antidote, right? So vitamin C specifically, that's one that people talk about, but you look at the the early polar explorers that went up there, like Stefansson and and, uh, others that wrote fat of the land. It was a professor at Harvard and no one believed it. it was like, no, you can't, you can't do that. You'll get scurvy. So he said, fine, I'll prove it. And he went to Bellevue hospital in New York and just said, fine, you feed me, I'll sit in this room completely controlled me and my partner will just hang out here uh his his um uh you know exploration par- partner uh, not his, his wife partner and um and they they you know just gave them just just meat and they controlled it did not get scurvy they did that for a year you know all their meals were controlled by bellevue hospital and they're like okay all right all right there's something to this um when you're eating carbohydrates specifically with vitamin C, well, actually with, with a lot of things, you actually need more vitamins and minerals, uh, because your body processes these things very differently. And, um, and so when you eat carbohydrates, you have a mixed diet, you need vitamin C measured in milligrams, you know, you need like at least 10 milligrams to stave off scurvy or so it is said, and then they recommend like daily recommended allowances or between like 90 and 120 milligrams a day of vitamin C Fine. When you don't eat carbs, you need vitamin C measured in nanograms, right? That's that's one millionth of a milligram. Okay, so you need far, far less. Why is this? There's a number of reasons. One, glut four receptor uh, is it competes for binding sites with vitamin C and and uh, uh, carbohydrates. Vitamin C just looks like a little fructose molecule with a little tail on it, and then, and and it has similar binding capacity, and so it competes in your gut and in your in your system, things get, 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 you know, in the way when you you're eating a bunch of carbohydrates, that's first of all, but most importantly, what is vitamin C used for? Vitamins to stave off scurvy. It's used for other things too, but for scurvy, it is used to hydrolyze, I believe it's protein, proline and lysine in order to have... The specific shape to these pro- proteins, so that they can bind properly and make and make tight, strong collagen. And when you don't have tight, strong collagen, you get loose collagen, and just like, you know, different sort of collagen diseases like Ehlers-Danlos and others. You know, you, you get weak tissue, and things break apart, and you have problems. And then with scurvy, you get a lot of problems. You start your gums start bleeding, your tissue starts breaking down, you start bleeding out into different cavities in your body. You you die. It's very 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 bad for you. Um, when you're eating meat you're getting collagen, you're getting those, those uh, amino acids already hydrolyzed, and you already have the substrate necessary to make all the collagen you need. You don't need vitamin C to make collagen, you already have it. So you only actually need any vitamin C to stave off scurvy, you just need to eat enough meat. And in fact, you know, you're, you're coming from, from England, you know, that that's the whole thing of you know, getting scurvy, the sailors, and you know, they would call them limeys. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't all of them. It was the actual sailors, the, like the enlisted men and things like that. It wasn't the wasn't the officers. The officers had meat; they were eating meat. They didn't get scurvy. It was the men who was just eating like gruel and 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 uh, you know oatmeal and things like that and and grog that were getting it. You know the officers weren't getting it. And when when Stephanson and other polar explorers went in with the Inuits, they were like, yeah, these guys don't eat any of this stuff. And they were just like, well, look, these guys know what they're doing. They've been here for you know millions of years. We're just gonna go with them. And they were just like, wow, I've never felt better in my life. This is amazing. And then there were, um, I remember, it wasn't Stefanski, but it was another polar explorer. Uh, I forget the guy's name, but basically one guy on the, on the expedition uh, was very sick and very unwell. They couldn't figure out what was going on. He's getting worse and worse. And the guy's just close to death. And they're like, okay, what the hell is going on? And they start going through all his pack and all his things. And they found like a big stash of like sailor's biscuits like a <laughs> bunch of carbs And they're like, you idiot. Because they were saying, it was just like, everyone eat as the Inuits do. You know, this is very important. You only eat the meat. This is is vital. And this guy was just like, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. And so he ate, uh, he was eating these biscuits and he got very severe uh, uh, nutritional deficiencies. They just took those away, started feeding him meat. Bam, back together, you know, no problem. So you need very different nutrients based on what you're eating. And so you, you can call them anti-nutrients, you can call them whatever you want, but your plants do a lot of things to block you absorbing things, to block you getting nutrition, to stop you from using their bodies for your for your fuel because they don't want you to do that. They don't want to die and be eaten alive. Like no one does, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, and, and everything has an ability to stop you yeah. or else you wouldn't be here as a species, you would be extinct. And so plants do that predominantly with poison i think
0: anybody getting into it and anybody looking into carnivore nutrition scared of vitamin c needs to really take that on board and just to simplify it a little bit is if you're having carbohydrates the carbohydrates will compete with the vitamin c so you mm-hmm. will need more vitamin c you know that is basically it so yeah. when you're on a full carnivore diet you don't need the vitamin c you need very little amount like what you say and it's all there already for you in the collagen, in the bones and in, in the organs and in the skin and everything that you eat with the animals. That's great. But I don't want to take up too much of your time. I realize that we're going on and on, but it's just great That's to right. chat, chat with you. Um, but there is yeah. just one thing that I want to say to everybody listening today is how do they start? OK, so they've worked out from us today that carnivore is potentially the optimal health, for your, best for your optimal health. Um, but they're eating carbohydrates they're still having some mm-hmm. plants in their nutrition god forbid they're still on processed foods <laughs> how do they yeah. begin to edge towards a more optimal nutrition
1: yeah, yeah well i, I do uh, like a, v- a video on this just called do how you know um, carnivore for beginners and I sort of like walk through these sorts of things but um it's it, it basically just comes down to you know, you just, you just have to start and you just have to do it. I think that, you know I mean? You can, you can sort of work your way down and sort of start even easing these things off, but, you know, just like people that, that are quitting smoking, you know, you know, piecemeal. And they're sort of like slowly, all oh, decrease, like, you know, one cigarette a week. And this, I mean, you're, you're fooling yourself, you know, you're not really committed to like, you know, getting off these things, the, you know, all the studies show that, and, and people obviously quit in a number of different ways, but most people have success quitting cold Turkey. And just, they, they make the decision, they make it then. And it's just like, right. I'm not doing this anymore. They throw out all the cigarettes, they throw out all these sorts of things. And they just like not doing this, you will have withdrawals. You will feel pretty crummy. And then you won't, it'll get, you'll get over it. You know, you'll stop having cravings. You'll stop having, uh, um, you know, withdrawals and, and you'll feel good and you get to the other side and you'll feel better than you ever have. The same is true for carb and sugar addictions and all the different plant toxins. You know, there's, it's never a bad time to stop eating poison. You know, and so if you just stop completely, I think that that works better. Some people do better with a a more staged approach. If you are going to do that, I think you have to do a, a very, very strict, like write it down on a calendar on this day, carbs are gone carbs and sugar are gone. On this day, alcohol is gone. On this day, you know, I'm cutting out nightshades on this day. I'm cutting out cruciferous vegetables. And then you just cut it out, cut it out, cut it out. And then I'm you know cutting out honey, cutting out berry, cutting out all these sorts of things. And it's just like, and then it's just like on this day, no more plants. And then you just, and then you just go no coffee either. Coffee's a plant. And, um, I think it depends on what kind of person you are. You have
0: to sort of work out your, your, Mm -hmm. how you're going to deal with it yourself best because some people, like you say, we'll be able to go strict. We'll be able to cut it out straight away, which is probably the best way, like you describe. Mm. But then if you are committed to it and you really want to do it, but you know that that is just not the way you can do it, then just go step by step. At the end of the day, yeah. if you're doing one thing different tomorrow than you are doing today, you're better off and mm. think where you'll be in a year's time. So pick, yeah. the, pick the type of characteristics you know you're going to deal with best Pick the type of plan you know you're going to deal with best. There is people out there like myself, like yourself, who can help you along the way if you need that. So perhaps tell our audience where they can find you. Follow along with you and find all your content.
1: Yeah. Oh well. Thank you very much. And um, yeah. So my main thing is my, my YouTube channel. It's just Anthony Chafee, MD, and I have a lot of different videos, especially like the early ones where I'm I'm just really talking about the you know the, you know the the um, the the the, the the bare bones and nuts and bolts of carnivore, why we're doing this, why it's important, why it matters, what the evidence is and, uh, and, and how, how to get going with it. And, you know, talking about, you know, sugar and plant toxins and, uh, you know, cholesterol actually being good for you and all these different sorts of things. And so I have all those in there. And like I said, you know, carnivore for beginners and uh, talking about fiber and all these sorts of things. Uh, so that's on my YouTube channel. I think that's a good resource, and I, and I've done other interviews like like this one, and talk more about it, and uh, people can find those. I also have a podcast called The Plant Free MD, and I think that's probably a good way if you just sort of start at the beginning and get going. That sort of goes into like a good direction because especially early on, I wanted to get the, just the basics out to people, just to understand you know, why we're doing this and why it matters, and then you know going on moving on from there, and um, and getting a bit more refined as you go but uh, those would be the main things and people can find out on any, any podcast site. And then I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram as well. And uh, that's just Anthony Chafee MD as well. And then I have for, for sort of added support, we do like a 30 day carnivore challenge where we have a lot more uh, help for people and they're in like a, a telegram group and myself and my, my partner, Simon Lewis would be helping out with that. And, and we'll be in there chatting with people every day and answering questions and getting people on board to really try pure just meat and water Diet, and then we have weekly Zoom meetings and check-ins just to make sure people are staying on board. So it seems to be doing pretty well. People are having good results, and that's great. And then I have a uh, a Patreon group that I'm that I'm trying to build now and try to build that community. We have a Discord community where everyone's chatting and talking. We have a carnivore book club. Where we read different things. Like we'll be reading Stephanson's "Fat of the Land" this month. We're reading uh, "Guns, Germs, and Steel" uh, by Jared Diamond, and um, and that's just Anthony Chafee, as well so that's Brilliant. So e- everywhere reasons, you can yeah. find you everywhere
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's great and i really just want to say to everybody that's listening that I, the best i've ever felt is on carnivore nutrition and i must push myself to be more full carnivore because i am an endurance athlete as well which i've maybe not not mm-hmm. mentioned at the start but yeah i do feel best when i'm on that so anybody that uh, wants to try i urge them to give a go and to follow along with you and i really thank you very much for coming along today and breaking it all down for us. It's been great.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.